Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. I'm Uzair Yunus and joining me today is Dr. Atif Mia. As many of you may know, Dr. Atif Mia is professor of economics, public policy and finance at Princeton University and someone who's written a lot and talked a lot about Pakistan's economy and what ails it. In this episode we talked about why does Pakistan keep going back to the IMF? What really are the underlying problems that the economy faces? and how things can be improved. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this discussion. Dr. Saab, welcome to the show. Thank you, Uzair. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start off with what is essentially a big question and we can dive deep into it essentially is Pakistan keeps going through what is a boom-bust cycle and I don't know if we can even call it a boom because more often than not growth hits 5% and then pakistan is back to the imf uh, as it is right now and i just wanted to get a sense from you uh, so that you can explain to our listeners on why does that keep happening and why is pakistan in yet another imf program uh, in 2020 yeah i think uh, the first point to keep in mind is that the economic situation in pakistan is quite dire i mean it's really a serious uh, situation however that is not just a reflection of where things stand today um it is also equally a reflection on where things have been in the past so if you go back uh, you know 10 20 30 years uh, basically most of my adult life uh, the economic situation in pakistan has been you know pretty pretty weak uh, basically you know it's it, it mm-hmm. sometimes gets slightly less weak than other times and so on but as you rightly said there's never been truly a boom period uh, that you can talk about uh, over the last 30 40 years um what that means is that there is something as i said you know deep or structurally wrong with the economy that it's not getting on the right track that it needs to to be able to function for you know the very large population and increasingly uh, in, uh, you know larger population that we have um and we need to understand um what's wrong at a fundamental level now when you think of that question of what is wrong at the deeper structural level there are two things i would like to highlight um and then we can have a deeper discussion on either or both of those points but the two things that i would like to highlight the first one is in terms of diagnosis um i'll just first give this broad diagnosis that the fundamental issue uh the fundamental theme that we need to think about um is the lack of domestic productivity growth uh that's the fundamental problem over the last 30 40 okay. years um what that means uh, this is sort of a technical jargon but what that means in simpler terms is that the core problem with pakistan's economy is its inability or a lack of capacity to produce stuff that the world cares about uh, that is to say to produce value added stuff so there are various elements to it it means that the inputs that it takes to develop something valuable we don't tend to have those inputs it means that the combinations that we need to produce value added stuff that is to say the level of complexity in the production process we are unable to have that level of complexity it means we don't have the level of coordination when it comes to laws and regulations that the you know that that people don't come together in firms the way they tend to do in other countries to produce more sophisticated goods so it has many bells and whistles attached to it 
But again, I think the bottom line, the way I would phrase the key problem is this lack of domestic productivity growth. And I think whatever we may decide in terms of policy and so on, if it doesn't map back to how it is solving this core problem of domestic productivity growth, whatever policy that is, it's likely to be quite mm-hmm. useless for Pakistan. So that's kind of point number one. And again, again, there's a lot to talk about here and I'll be happy to if time allows. Yeah. But that's problem number one. Um, <clears throat> problem or issue uh, number two that I want to highlight up front is um, about the process. You can call it governance as well, but it's it, perhaps it's more about the software that runs the economy. Um, and there it's important to keep in mind that the when you know the economy progresses as a result of certain decisions, uh, certainly for a country like Pakistan that the government makes, and then it has to implement those decisions. And so there is this constant circle of decision-making, then implementation, then feedback from that implementation, and some new decision get, get, decisions get made in the next round. And the, the main point I want to make is that there is, if when you look closely at that process, just broadly, let's call that the decision-making process of the economy, what you realize is that there is something again fundamentally wrong with that process. And I'll let me I'll, I'll give give you give you some examples of what I mean yeah, by sure. that. Um, um, but but I just want to again stress that that decision making process is fundamentally broken in Pakistan. And again, it has been broken in the past, and unfortunately, it continues to be broken. So I just want to make it clear that on both of these points, you know, we we live in this sort of hyper emotional social media world where people love to kind of put blame on this party or that party. But really, the reality of Pakistan is much sadder than that, which is that, you know, as Urdu is hamam mein sab nangi hai. So it's, you know, really, you know, nobody is wearing <laughs> any great clothes. Mahabra, by the way. Um, here. And we need to recognize that and, and only then can we move forward. Um, so so let, me, let me talk a bit more, if it's okay with you, about the decision-making process. Sure. Uh, let, let's because, start there, and 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 then we can go back to productivity growth because I have some points about that as well. But let's start with the decision-making process and how you think it's it's been broken for decades. I'm assuming. Gee, exactly. Um, so I'll just try to give some examples to better fix this idea in people's minds about what I mean. Um, and you know, I mean, this is I'm I'm just picking from what comes to mind myself, but uh, there may be other examples, of course. Um, there are many sort of macro big decisions, I would say, that have been taken by governments in the past that illustrate um, just ineptitude, basically, you know, for lack of a better word, again, that it just reflects the the poor quality of input, uh, the lack of proper deliberation, the lack of um, um, an ability to evaluate data of where the country stands right now and and really just winging it in terms of you know the big decisions that have been made in the past so I'll, I'll again I'll let me not give some specific examples before you do that can I quickly interject and say would you agree that it is not just about where the country stands right now but it is also about having a vision of where it needs to go to progress would you agree with that as oh, well ab- that that's part ab- of the problem absolutely absolutely okay. um and, 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 you know, it's sort of two sides of the same coin, right? I mean, when you 
when you don't have the capacity to make good decisions that also means you have you don't have much of an idea of having a strategic long term vision of where you should be going um um I mean, again, I mean, the, the broader point is that without this capacity to think, right? That's another way of saying that. I mean, this I'm talking about this collective thinking, right? Yeah, without a capacity yeah. to think collectively, uh, to organize our thoughts, to make decisions about how we as a society are going to govern ourselves, uh, how we as a society can make um, collective, intelligent decisions, I mean, without that ability, of course, you, you're going to have no idea what should be your long-term strategic vision. And so you move directionless from, you know, kind of one signpost to another. And, you know, it shows up in the macro data as this sort of what you referred to as in the beginning as these boom bust cycles. Uh, and we can come back to that in more detail. But 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 just to continue the 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 thought on this on this lack of proper decision making, um, let me just give you some examples. So, you know, I mean, let's start with the early 90s when there was this sort of big liberalization wave, right? And if you think of some major decisions that were taken there um, on, the, on the financial side, for example, a decision was made which was to allow local citizens to have uh, dollar deposits, right? So you could, you could buy dollars from the curb market and you could deposit them in in, in, in into your bank account and so on. For whatever reason that decision was made, it was essentially you know opening up capital account. Um, one can debate the macro um, implications of that, but if you have such a policy, you at least would have you know the minimal understanding of this policy sh- Im- implies that if you are allowing people to put dollar deposits in the banks, the banks obviously are not keeping those dollar deposits; they are giving those dollars to the state bank. And those are short-term liabilities, essentially, because people, those depositors can come back anytime and they can demand those dollar deposits back. But what the state bank and official policy was doing at the time was it was using these demandable dollar deposits, uh, which are very short-term in nature, and using those to fund basically the current account, which is essentially like you know funding your long-term dollar deficits. And even, you know, basic understanding of a financial balance sheet will say that you are exposing yourself to enormous risk, your macro balance sheet, by doing this. And so of in, in, layman, in, in layman terms, right, essentially, tell me if I'm hearing this uh, correctly. In layman terms, essentially, what the state bank was doing is collecting these short-term liabilities and deposits and using them, essentially short-term borrowings, to pay for imports that were coming into the country for which it did not have any other means to pay for. That's exactly right. That's you, you said it in much, much better, better terms. That's why you're the host. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and that's exactly right. Right. I mean, it's, it, 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 it makes no sense. There should have been some adult in the room in that decision-making process who sh- should have looked at the macro prudential consequences of this policy and said, look, you know, this, this is very dangerous for the country. And and just to, we, we found out, it did turn out to be very dangerous for the country. Um, in 98, when India tested the nuclear weapons and Pakistan had to test nuclear weapons in response, because of this bad decision that was made, the economic cost of that, you know, strategic decision for whatever reason, the economic cost was much larger for Pakistan than it was for India. Because you had done this and now all of a sudden, 
you know, there was a run on 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 dollar deposits, and of course, that's precisely um, what leads to sort of the collapse of this kind of a, 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 a sort of a mismanaged macro uh, situation. And so, Pakistan suffered a lot more than it should have if the decision makers had taken better decisions in the past. Um, so that's just one example, but there are many. You know, take the energy. You know, big problem in Pakistan always has been energy. I mean, I remember when I was a kid growing up. People used to tell us, you know, there's no going to be no more electricity five years. I mean, we have been hearing about this forever. <laughs> well, um, it, it's funny you bring that up because I was going to say since I was a kid and I'm a bit younger than you are. And it was the same story. So it's kind of like Groundhog Day as well. Right. Is what I tell people often exactly, is that exactly. things repeat in Pakistan in cycles of 10, 15 years. So, you know, the energy example, please go on. But it's relevant to me and I guess a lot of younger listeners as well, because they've lived through the same thing. Exactly, exactly. But the thing, you know, this also goes back to your question about long-term vision. Um, energy is a serious input to everything else in the economy. Did we ever, our decision-making process, what did that decision-making process uh, give us as a solution to this fundamental problem that everyone knew? As I said, you know, I knew it in my childhood. You knew it in your childhood. We all knew it's a serious problem. But think about the decision-making process and what it what it uh, gave us as a possible solution to this problem. The energy problem, as it was fundamentally designed, was again fundamentally designed to fail. I mean, it was a fundamental design flaw in the basic energy in, uh, uh, energy policy because what the energy a process essentially said was that we are going to allow foreign investment to come in mm-hmm. to set up these energy plants number one okay fine you know but then the way it was structured was that um you know it's there is no particular guidelines of what kind of fuel or input it's going to use on what its impact is going to be on balance of payments and to top yeah. it all off these People who are going to set up these energy plants, they were guaranteed returns with sovereign guarantees in dollar terms. Now, this is a fascinating. And just in terms, I interrupt you again, but so that people are clear on the timeline of this. This happened at the same 90s liberalization wave that you were talking about earlier, when exactly. the short-term currency deposits were taken for paying borrowed imports, and then. You double down on that by saying we will also guarantee dollar-denominated returns in the energy sector without paying attention to the cost of the energy or any long-term thinking and vision in terms of how to structure the energy sector. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let's think through a little bit about the structure. You know, this, is, this is a policy question, right? And so the policy put in place this structure. And obviously, this was very attractive for the investors because they were guaranteed dollar deter- returns by the, by the sovereign. Um, and so the plants were set up, but look at the consequences of those plants for the, for the economy. Um, you have put enormous negative pressure on already weak balance of payment, number one. But number two, and this is a sort of a slightly technical point, but an important one, which is that while you have to pay for all the electricity in dollar terms, right, the electricity is primarily being used for domestic consumption. People are using it in their houses and so on. And sure, industry is using it as well. So there is some export component, agreed. But it's a much smaller share of the overall production of energy that is coming from this essentially imported sources, whether they are fuels or whether it's profits that you have to repatriate to the investors. Um, 
and that again creates this second imbalance that you are fundamentally financing a non-tradable sector which is this domestic consumption of mm-hmm. electricity mm-hmm. um and you are financing it through dollar imports and you are going to be left with this fundamental imbalance that you will not be able to pay for it and how is that going to result well it's going to result in balance of payment crisis number 1 and number yeah. two because there is this fundamental mismatch it is also going to feed into this circular debt problem now of course i am fully aware that the line losses and all of that also contributes towards it but the whole system is also set up in a way that it is designed to fail for the reasons that i mentioned yeah um, and and you would and and you would set up the system right knowing that there were line loss likelihoods there's political interference those are political realities in pakistan right so the job of an effective policy maker is to keep those systems levels issues in mind when developing a, a strategy and a policy for long term success right so i i'm hearing from you is that those realities were not paid attention to and essentially what you had was again we will pay you back in dollars uh but by the way the earnings for that will come in rupees and so the mismatch occurs and the country is 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 left with a big bill to foot um and unable to pay in terms of balance of payments that's that's exactly right and and and, and just to push this point of analysis a bit further what you just referred to is you know in technical terms you might call a sensitivity analysis of the framework right that's like the bare basic thing that you do when you write down some numbers on the balance sheet and you say this is going to be the cost of energy this is going to be the revenue generated from this uh, uh, electricity on average you do a minimum kind of a sensitivity analysis say okay you know what there's there's going to be some uncertainty in going forward you know over the next 10 20 years the price of oil is going to fluctuate there's going to be this political interference potentially line losses might go up and down you 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 do a sensitivity analysis around those numbers and you ask yourself the basic question what is going to be the cost the potential cost of the country um if things go up and down can we really afford it is it really sustainable mm-hmm. you know all of these questions but again this is why i'm come keep coming back to the decision making process is fundamentally broken and it has been broken and there has been no change in it as far as i can tell um and until and unless we recognize it things are not going to change now i am my you know have one eye on the time i am happy to give you a couple of other big examples here you know yeah. um, and, and but i, I but, I, but me... i hope this point is made and even today i can talk about policies that have been made that make absolutely no sense I mean, just a small example you know again energy and climate change is a big issue just imagine how we dealt with it with this yeah. dam fund thing and you know i mean th- yeah. this is how we are collectively making decisions and then we wonder why the country doesn't move forward well so i think i think the sensitivity analysis is is so amazing that you raise it because it's something that a finance graduate in undergrad right finance 101 201 classes you learn how to conduct sensitivity analysis so it's not like you, this is something that a phd or a super smart person needs to carry out it's basic economic common sense when you make any business decision or economic decision right and i want you to bring i want to bring you back to today because there were you mentioned energy and finance and those two things at least even for me uh 
you know, resonate today. So if you look at Pakistan's energy sector today and the new power projects that were set up uh, under the China-Pakistan economic corridor, follow, in my view at least, and correct me if you uh, think I'm wrong, the same model where the dollar-denominated returns are guaranteed, a return on equity is guaranteed, and uh, the revenue still continues to come in repeat terms. And oh, by the way, to your point on climate change, uh, what did we do for an import-dependent uh, import energy economy? We started importing more LNG and more coal uh, to double down on our imports and expose ourselves even further. That's the point number one. Point number two that I want you to comment on is on the financial side. And I know you had a, a, a tweet on this as well, a thread on this, about the fact that essentially the treasury bill flows that are coming in in short-term dollar denominate or short-term debt and dollar flows um, are a risk. And I want you to, you know, share your views on both those things because these are new phenomenon, right? It's like from the 90s, if you look at the 21st century, at least to me, it seems like those same strategies and mistakes have been repeated in both the financial and the energy sector once again. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to... Um take both those questions. Uh, the, your first one um, regarding uh, CPEC, essentially. Um, uh, I, I um, agree with uh, basically what you, the gist of what you said. Um, CPEC is just another prime example of the complete failure of our decision-making process. You know, first of all, this idea that if someone wants to discuss CPEC, it would be some sort of a blasphemy you know, I mean, that's how it all started off. For, uh, yes, off yes. With. And, yep. and, you know, I mean, this is the thing that, you know, that I, if we truly cared about the country and the 200 million people that live in it, you have to open up to a critical conversation, a critical discussion of the society as well as the economy. If we cannot talk about this openly and honestly, you know, we are all from the same country. We all care deeply, equally about it. Rather than always kind of saying, you know, oh, I am going to doubt your intentions and not allowing a constructive debate. You know, the problem with not allowing constructive debates on issues that really matter is that you are almost guaranteed to make stupid decisions. Yeah. I'm going and to sidetrack a little here. bit. There was this interesting, you know, think of what's going on right now with this virus in China. And there's yeah. this very sad story of the doctor who was the first one to say, look, there is something, I'm seeing some of these patients, there's some outbreak going on. He was saying to him, his other doctors, please, you know, be careful, be mindful and look into this. And the initial response of the authorities was, let, let you know, to shut him up and yeah. to say, you know, why are you spreading this stuff? You are going against the society and they forced him to write a confession and all of that. The mm -hmm. poor guy himself became infected and he just died. I was reading on BBC. Yeah. The, yeah. But the broader point I'm trying to make here is that this is very much part of a sound decision-making process, that you must allow debate. You must allow critical analysis of questions and issues that are important for the country. If you don't do that, and if you couch everything as some sacred cow that cannot be mm -hmm. questioned, the society is going to suffer. And let's be very clear on that. So, 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 so with that kind of... Um, 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 uh, sort of a, a, a broader kind of a philosophical point, if you like, on how, how to go about discussing these issues. Let me go back to CPEC. Um, now, CPEC, you know, in the bigger scheme of things, there is so much that Pakistan can and should learn from China. 
there is so much that both countries but especially pakistan can benefit from china given the technological advancement that has happened there given the you know the the enormous improvement in pulling people out of poverty that has happened there there are huge gains to be made uh, by by through fruitful economic collaboration between china and pakistan however the, that needs to be done properly and when you look at the way cpec was structured you know before we evaluate anything in cpec if you go back to what we were discussing earlier about energy policy in general and this sort of importance of sensitivity analysis and so on to this day i have not seen a single serious study by the government of pakistan on this kind of an analysis at a macro level a simple sensitivity analysis you know i remember i just once raised this question some very senior people in the this is the previous government said saying look has anyone done a sensitivity analysis of what will happen to the value um added proposition for pakistan from cpec investments if exchange rate were to devalue by let's say 30% or 50% which unfortunately mm-hmm. happened but that was my question and and there was no ris- the, and and the response was actually worse than the not having done it yeah <laughs> the response yeah. was that we don't need to worry about it because a lot of this investment is coming under the private investment umbrellas like the energy umbrella that i talked about um but that's not true. a silly comment because from a macro perspective for precisely the reasons that i mentioned earlier even if these are private investments they have implications for your balance of payment so you need to worry about those um absolutely but but again again i'll just go back to the broader point if you're not here to litigate cpec what i am really what i want to focus on is the core problem is not cpec or this policy or that policy the core problem is that the whole decision making process is fundamentally broken we are not as you said we are not even doing the basic excel spreadsheet analysis that a good undergraduate would be expected to do in my class and that is the seriousness of how much the system is broken until and unless we talk about it properly and then resolve to fix it it is of course easy to fix this is not some super you know un uh, um uh, solvable problem that we are talking about but it does mean that you have to behave as you know as adults who really care about putting this country on a different track and we are, we are just not there yet it, it it seems and i think the the decision making point is well taken and in fact as you were describing this like the thing that came to my mind in last week's episode i had bilal moon and we were talking about financial markets and you know i had a rant about how pakistan got nadra uh, before india got aadhar but then india built on top of it the unified payments interface and pakistan to this day has not figured out the unified payments interface which is critical for digital payments and formalization of the economy um but again there has been no decision making and thinking in terms of where we are and where we want to go to enable the economy to grow through technological solutions which by the way are not rocket science right so right. same thing with sensitivity analysis it's not rocket science it's basic basic economic or business management and thinking um and so my question on, on following on the decision making uh line is that you know in most countries this type of decision making is the responsibility of elites and it's the responsibility of elites across the board whether in business whether in government or outside uh to tell people and set up for that type of success 
Um, do you think that Pakistan's elites have let the country down and its 220 million people down? And if so, uh, how do we get out of this? Yes, uh, I'm happy to answer this question, but uh, Uzair, I haven't answered your uh, earlier question about portfolio flows. So I don't know if you do you want yes, me to answer let's, that. Yes, let's 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 go to portfolio flows, and I'll bring you back to the elite okay, question. Okay, just remind me to bring me back because I I didn't want to um, avoid that question. Um, so on portfolio flows, and as you said, I've I've, I've said this publicly um, as well. Look, this is an area which happens to be quite close to my my, my research as well. So there's a lot that has been done on this, especially in the recent past. And the, 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 you know, what what we have learned is that capital flows, especially for a country like Pakistan with weak uh, financial systems, with weak balance of payment history, with people always being nervous about the next crisis and so on, that's especially for these kind of countries, Portfolio flows can be destabilizing if you you're not careful about monitoring them and regulating them and having a macroprudential structure, including the possibility of capital controls around it. Now, to be more specific, what 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 we have learned is that for countries like Pakistan, it is kind of dangerous or risky, if you like to borrow, especially borrow short term, but in general to borrow just for, uh, uh, just borrow uh, through through the portfolio flows. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and, the, and the sort of the basic reason for this is that these things can flow back as easily as they come in. Yeah. And when they flow back, they, there is an asymmetry because when they come in, they don't benefit you much. Now, number one, the reason they don't benefit you much is because, remember, these are like fundamentally portfolio flows. What yeah. that means is they are just replacing some existing asset. So they are not necessarily leading to like new construction, for example, or new investment, mm-hmm. I should say, right? They are not building new plants, machinery, hiring new people, and so on. Yeah. They are just buying an existing piece of paper with foreign money. And, and that does not have much of a direct effect coming in. But when it moves out, it can have a, a much greater destabilizing effect because of its impact on balance of payment, exchange rate, and everything else that goes that mm-hmm. is affected, uh, which Pakistan is well familiar with. And so for yeah. this kind of a reason, these portfolio flows, empirically we have seen, and we have sort of a conceptual framework around this as well, we have seen that these portfolio uh, flows can be destabilizing, I said, especially for, for a country like Pakistan. I mean, for the US, it's a totally different ballgame. They can they can afford to do this because they are in a very special privileged position. But for a country like Pakistan, you have to think very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so, what that means is that you have to create a firewall that protects you from these kind of portfolio flows. That's point number one. And by the way, a country that has done this uh, quite explicitly in the past and has been uh, very successful actually on, on this score at least is China. So if you look at Chinese policy of how it dealt with capital flows, especially when it was on its, in its earlier stages of development, closer to Pakistan's right now, during the 80s and early 90s, it, it, it did not encourage portfolio flows. Now, having said that, of course, you don't want to close to, we don't want to close yourself to foreign capital, but you have to be very clear what kind of foreign capital you want to encourage. 
And the one foreign capital that actually helps empirically and is the foreign capital that you want to encourage is invest is is what we essentially refer to as foreign direct investment, which is to say mm-hmm. it's capital that comes in and breaks new ground. It's capital that yeah. comes in and is actually building a new plant, a new firm, hiring new people to to produce something. Number one. Number two, even with that kind of capital, you want to kind of regulate it. That is to say, when this capital comes in, you have to always keep in mind that since it's coming from the outside, you have to pay it back. And so this notion of how you're going to pay it back in the foreign currency is very important to keep in mind. So again, you want to encourage FDIs, but you want to especially encourage FDIs that lead to exports. So let me give you an example of a terrible FDI. A terrible FDI would be money that comes in just to speculate in the housing market because it's obviously not leading to any exports and it's not even leading to higher productivity. And they are just trying to speculate on higher land value and taking the money back. Um, That would be the worst kind of FDI and you don't want that. So you want to encourage FDI in the right sectors And then under the right conditions, that's the last point I'll make on this, which is technology transfer. You want this FDI to have spillovers to the rest of the economy in a positive way. And so it must come with technology Mm -hmm. um, that that stays on the ground. And again, if you follow, for example, again, going back to the Chinese example, you know, these are the things we need to learn from Chinese. Speaking of, you know, (laughs) the, 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 the collaboration that we need to have. Um, this is exactly how they nurtured their domestic industry by allowing foreign entry, but then under these requirements that it must lead to these spillovers, it must be export based and it and it must um, have those that technological transfer component. Yeah. None yeah. of which, by the way, we see in CPEC coming back, you know, to to, yeah. to how that was done. Um, so, um, so anyways, this is, this is my, um, quick take on portfolio flows. Unfortunately, we do not currently have a framework that deals with flows in the way that I've just described. I was, it was disappointing that, um, the only change that has been made recently is that these tax rates were reduced on, you know, more than three-year government bonds for foreign investors to bring them to the same level as the tax as the tax rate on 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 shorter term bonds but again the point is that this you know if if anything you need the opposite which is you need to raise the tax rates on on portfolio flows especially the short end ones um but 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 currently we don't have uh, that sort of a framework and we certainly need one yeah, and I, and I think this this whole thing that you described it brings me back to your original point, which was on decision making and having a vision and long term idea of where you want to go. Because ultimately, to have FDI to think about what sectors where you could have a competitive advantage to double down on those, having targets, looking at technology transfers, encouraging FDI, uh, maybe even skills development for those sectors, right? Require a robust and sound decision-making process with a long-term thinking, which seems to be lacking. And I'll go back to the elites later, but also like 
uh, it brings me back to your initial point where, when we started was about productivity growth, right? Pakistan has not had productivity growth. So do you think in a country with low productivity growth, like can 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 a government push a policy framework that encourages FDI, particularly in FDI that leads to technology transfer and more exports? Oh, of course, of course. Uh, this is, I mean, you know, this is this. I I understand this is a bit like a chicken and egg issue, um, but um, you can absolutely uh, promote FDI. You know, the way to think of FDI promoting FDI is it's just that you have to make it attractive enough. So you know, the price has to be right. One is one is sort of that issue. The other the other thing which is difficult, the more difficult part is um, um, building credibility. You know, this is why this is the right challenge to take on, which is, you know, the right benchmark by which you want to judge yourself. You know, it's very, it's very easy to convince the Blackstones of the world, the the Goldman Sachs of the world. Look, the interest rate is thirteen percent right now. Please come and bet on us for six months. Yeah. It's right? a very easy carry trade. It's very right? easy. It's like money, say, look, money yeah, on the coming table. in. Foreign money is coming in, but you know, any serious person knows this is garbage. This is not going to help the country. You're just borrowing at 13% while the exchange rate is not going to move much because you're under an IMF program, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, 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 and and your flows will, will, will meet the demand for dollars in the market. And so this exchange rate will remain yeah, stable. And you're going to be country. paying the profit on those, uh, on those government bonds. Basically, that's, the, that's just money you're throwing out, essentially. You're not gaining anything from it. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, 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 but... Coming back to your FDI question, that's precisely why the target you want to you know, this is this is where this question of long-term vision comes in. You want to set the right goals for yourselves. It is a hard goal, I agree. Like you know, you said your FDI is a longer-term commitment. It's going to be harder, and you mentioned low productivity. It's going to be harder to convince outsiders to come. But you know, productivity is low, but then wages are low as well, right? And so you, what you are essentially saying to the outsiders is, please come in with your higher productivity technology into Pakistan. Take advantage of these lower priced labor. That's what I meant by the prices. You can, you know, is, okay, is that what, makes you, sense. You, yeah. what you use to attract people. So you tell them, look, the prices are low. You bring in your technology to boost productivity. And then you benefit from the, from the, uh, from the revenue. Mm-hmm. But you have to be able to convince to them that you know that their investment will be secure. That you now incentivize all you want. You know, give them capital account convertibility, right? Because they want to take their money back at some point. Um, so give them all those guarantees. I'm all for that. But in 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 the in the vehicle that actually helps the country move forward as well. Not in a way that we have accustomed to doing things only for the interest of these short-term, apparently quick wins, but for reasons mm-hmm. I've already mentioned, they 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 dig us deeper into the hole. Yeah, and, and going off of that, like, how important do you think our political stability within institutions, outside institutions, in terms of having that long-term? Uh, productivity growth or having long-term vision and strategy to achieve the FDI inflows and the uh, productivity growth. Do you think one of Pakistan's bad things has been that lack of political stability is also a major sticking point, which does not build credibility to allow that enabling environment to take shape? Or uh, are there other issues as well? Well, I mean, obviously, stability is important. 
However, one thing I will again emphasize is that when you take bad decisions of the type that we have talked about, of course, it's going to be much harder for you to maintain stability, right? I mean, just think of the energy example, for example, or the bad uh, uh, sort of macro potential uh, um, exchange rate regimes we have been running in the past. Um, the natural consequence of that very poor decision making is that you're going to have crises, right? Like currency crises, debt crises, and so on. And whenever you have those crises, they are naturally going to lead to political instability as well. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the average person on the street is not going to understand these nuanced arguments about exchange rate volatility and, you know, this mismatch between uh, 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 revenue and costs and things of that nature. What they see is that not, things are not working. Yeah, and, and there's inflation, they, right? That affects them. Yeah, directly. and they are going to go on the streets and they're going to say, okay, you know, to hell with you, we want new guys to come into power. Yeah. Um, so there is a close connection between the poor judgment on the decision-making side, and 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 you know, and the other thing I will just emphasize on this decision-making side is that this is where political parties need to step up a little bit more than they have in the past. Mm. You know, yes, you know, they have sometimes they have bad intentions, sometimes they have corrupt motives, and all of that, but the Perhaps the biggest tragedy in Pakistan is that even when they are trying to do something, they are unable to. And the reason is because, again, the kind of people who are involved in the decision-making process, they just don't know what they are doing. Plus, it's also political opportunism, right? So, for example, even in like since the Musharraf era ended, everyone's talked about privatization and privatization of things like the PIA and the steel mill. And I find it quite hilarious that Every party in opposition says we won't let you do it and then stymie a government uh, in power to uh, stop its privatization process. And the moment that other party then comes to power, they talk about privatization and the party that was in government but now is in opposition says, no, 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 we won't let you do that. The same uh, is true of the tax regime, right, in terms of what we've seen, uh, value-added tax, and that's been stuck and in the doldrums because political opportunism means that you gain from the crisis uh, economic that turns into political and you look at it for the next two, three, four year cycle and say, I can stop the government from doing what I would actually want to do if I was in power just because I want to come in power. And it's like a catch 22 uh, situation, but it, it's essentially opportunism trumps any sort of sound going back to what you described, decision making process and vision. Yeah. No, I mean that's uh, that's that's exactly right. Um, I mean, related to that, this is where um, you know we need to have at least a broadly defined core strategic vision of where this country is going in in the next ten, twenty, thirty years, mm-hmm. um, and some level of broad agreement on the contours of that vision. I think that is like super important it includes a number of issues of you know the political structure that we are going to have how we are going to deal with dissent in this country um you know, there, there are some again very fundamental problems there as well so just to take like one example it's sometimes actually actually often very hard to figure out who is in control in pakistan yeah now just think of that if you 
are an investor wanting to make an investment you it, you need to have some certainty about whose word you should care <laughs> yes right? and whether the person giving you a certain guarantee will be in power will tomorrow be, or not or, or, or you know whether it has any legal authority or not <laughs> i mean yes you know or the um, supreme court will take a suo moto and exactly, say this was illegal and exactly, to hell with you exactly. you know just think about that i mean you know one thing we can say okay you know for whatever reasons we cared about certain ideals and so on let's move that aside let's talk about practical economic stuff who is in i i actually can't figure out who's in control the prime minister doesn't seem to be in control most of the time <laughs> regardless of which which government is in power um but then but then the other party is also not in full control either right i mean if somehow we are in in this worst of both worlds that nobody is in full control everyone thinks the department of agriculture is in control everybody in but, but no the department of agriculture is not in control either i'm saying yes, at least you know, there is something in it economics we call the, we call the coast theorem right for those of you who say you know which 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 basically says look as it, it as long as there is mutual agreement about ownership who owns what you know who controls what just that mm-hmm. allocation actually takes you a lot further right and it's a very basic condition for a functioning economy that you know things should be well defined I mean, a bad guy might have control, fine, but at least you know who is in control. Yeah. The situation and, and we are in actually is much worse. That's my point. And I don't agree. I don't think it's the Department of Agriculture that is in control in that sense. I think they have partial control as well. Yeah. No, it's a hybrid system, right? And that lack exactly, of clarity exactly. has, has phenomenal impact. And yep. that's the worst yep. thing to have. And people, again, it's about that, whatever that decision-making pro you asked about the elites in one, we haven't really gone in that direction yet. But, you know, I mean, the whoever is, I don't know who they are for this reason. I don't know. I don't know who to talk to if I were to say, okay, you know, you are in charge. Can you do this? I don't know who's in charge. Um, and, 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 but that's part of the problem. I think we need to clarify rules of the game. Yeah, and I think that's something that's again come up consistently uh, in, in at least two of my, at least all three of my previous podcasts, both from a macroeconomic perspective as well as from a startup perspective, is that we don't have clarity on rules of the game, whether it's attracting venture capital funding or whether it's talking about larger things that we're talking about. Um, there is no clarity, and sometimes, uh, more often than not, actually, there is this resistance to common sense regulations or common sense approaches to problems, uh, such as the sensitivity analysis, um, which means that we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Speaking of uh, things that impact people, right? One thing when I put up on Twitter and you put up that you're coming on, a, a number of people asked a question in terms of, well, Pakistan has high interest rates and uh, these are bad for our country and inflation is still there. Therefore, the argument that high interest rates are necessary to control inflation does not hold true. And what the State Bank of Pakistan, along with the IMF, is doing uh, is a conspiracy against Pakistan. Um, explain to the listeners in terms of why in this environment does Pakistan need to have a high in- interest rate? Well, let me take a step back um, in terms of the interest rate question, and and let let me it it won't be apparent, but I I think there's a very real connection. Let me link this question to the earlier conversation I had about portfolio flows, and about the need for what I called kind of macro prudential regulations, and you know to mm-hmm. have some uh, uh, framework around it. 
there, there is a very close connection between a country's ability to run an independent monetary policy and whether it has the right macro prudential framework or not. I'll just give you a, a one mm -hmm. example to hopefully illustrate that point. When you lose control, especially a sort of a sort of a weak, poor government uh, uh, like Pakistan's, when you lose control of your balance of payment situation, that becomes the driver of everything else in the economy. That imbalance becomes the driver of everything else in 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 that economy. Uh, it leads to things like, you know, in technical jargon, we call the sudden stop, like the kind of the slowdown recession that Pakistan saw. Um, mm -hmm. um, but it also necessitates that your interest rate policy, for example, monetary policy to be more precise, tends to be then driven by the external imbalance concerns. Mm. Right? And it is precisely to avoid, you know, that's why the intelligent person always looks ahead. An intelligent nation always looks ahead and modifies its behavior today to prevent crises from happening in the first place. That's why I started talking about the decision-making process and yeah. developing the ability to think long-term, precisely because this is so important. Now that you have committed all the sins in the world and you have come to judgment day, then there is nothing left but to lament on, you know, high IMF margya or ye ho gaya, wo ho gaya. The point I'm trying to, again, this is why I started with the decision-making process. What we are going through is to at least some extent a consequence of the extremely poor decision-making that was done in the prior years. Hmm. We continue to have the same decision-making. I'm not putting the blame on the previous government. They are to share the blame, but nothing has changed, unfortunately. Yeah. We still have the same mentality of how we make decisions. Coming more, more closely to your question of, of the interest rates, so the first thing I want to highlight is that the interest rates, to a significant extent, at least early on, were in my reading of the situation, are being driven by this sort of the, the external margin, the balance of payment issues. And you're just trying to kind of control that situation. That's number one. Number two, the other observation I have, and there I am more circumspect because I think I would like to look at the data more carefully and so on, which is not easily available. However, the broader conceptual point I would make is that the argument that higher interest rates are needed to control inflation is essentially a demand side or Keynesian argument, which is to say that your demand is running ahead of supplies of your economy. And so that is leading to inflation. And so you need to control or pull back on demand by raising interest rates and hence reducing inflation, right? That is the full mm -hmm. argument for why you need higher interest rates to control inflation, which obviously Absolutely. Pakistan has. The pushback against that argument might be that, look, the inflation in this particular case, in this case, in the case of Pakistan, is to at least some extent not driven by these demand side factors that monetary policy is trying to lean against, but is in fact driven by sort of cost push on the supply side. It could be partly the obviously the major devaluation that has happened, but also remember as part of the IMF package, there has this, this, this increase in 
um, um, in 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 taxes that feed into like the by by taxes I mean indirect taxes, right? So in yeah. um, electricity prices and so on, stuff that feeds into the price of uh, consumer goods. And so if the rise in inflation is for that reason, you cannot deal with those forces by jacking up the interest rate. So so that's so 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 you know one has to be careful in thinking through the appropriate level of interest rates in the case of Pakistan because I mean part of it you can't do much about for you know this they were driven by external factors as I said and the right response to that is to change your decision making process and think long term and which is precisely why partly why I was agitated enough to start talking about portfolio flows because whatever however bad the current situation is it's more important that we don't let this happen again and and i think there's a even there the risk that just came to my mind with the portfolio stuff is that you're tying yourself to a high interest rate environment because the moment you start cutting them down those flows will very quickly reverse because the carry exactly, trade doesn't exactly make right. sense this anymore is, you've just given another reason you know this this is this is precisely why you know remember i said that in in modern thinking we have now come to a realization that for a country like pakistan you cannot have an independent monetary policy yeah. if you don't put in certain constraints on the capital flow side it is yeah. precisely for these kind of reasons and i think that risk will remain right because uh, a you have tied yourself to the carry trade b at least the data i've seen with the imf program which thankfully the imf pushed pakistan to release was uh, data on chinese debt which is also dollar denominated it's coming due in about 2 to 3 years it's 25% of pakistan's total external debt so again there those flows going out will create another balance of payments risk uh, not a crisis yet but at some point in time you will again have to raise interest rates um or depreciate your currency to meet those flows need, flow needs and so you know you basically double down with both short term flow debts as well as long term payments that are coming due in the next 2 to 2 to 3 years that's right and just to on that i mean to add another red flag here which is very much relevant pakistan is an outlier in terms of the maturity structure of its debt both domestic and external compared to its peer groups it has essentially the shortest maturity on both domestic mm-hmm. and external debt which essentially means you are constantly on this treadmill trying to roll over most of your outstanding debt yeah. that's a terrible position to be in it's like having a gun to your head all the time and yeah. you have to get out of the situation the solution to you know you obviously you cannot do that through portfolio flows so uh, this again, again goes by we are back to this question of decision making somebody has to be thinking long term and putting it benchmarks that we need to move towards it's about we have to change the maturity structure towards longer term we have to the kind of need those kind of fdis we don't need the stuff that is coming in right now we need to have a flexible exchange rate regime and be credible on it to tell the export sector that you are king basically in in this country for the foreseeable future and so on and so forth we have to on the energy front we have to move towards alternative energy at basically as fast a pace as possible our literally lives depend on it not just for mm-hmm. energy reason but equally importantly for climate change reasons these are very serious questions we don't have time of, uh, to get into that but nobody is thinking about them 
We don't have the well, capacity fact, to go in. Yeah, Sorry, in fact, yeah. the conversation is on the other side, right? It's regressive because you mentioned it earlier, but it's on the on the energy side. It's like, let's build large mega dams. And it's like, we don't need more large mega dams, especially ones that are uh, being constructed in seismically active zones because there's going to be earthquakes and the glaciers are melting. So we don't need those. And, and so, you know, the conversation on the flip side and on that note, I want to get your sense again on, one thing a lot of people have a question on, and my view on this is that the symptom uh, and the mantra in the last few years that has been talked about in Pakistan misdiagnosed the issue. The issue is what you're describing uh, in this podcast. But the mantra has been that corruption is responsible for Pakistan falling behind the rest of the world. And I want to get your sense on uh, how do you see the role of corruption and the fact that there is corruption in Pakistan, but then you look at countries like Vietnam, you look at countries like Korea in terms of their early trajectory, even China are far more corrupt or have been known to be more corrupt, if not as corrupt as Pakistan, but have developed. So is corruption really the problem in Pakistan? Well, I mean, you know, look, I mean, um, nobody will say corruption is good, right? However, um, this conversation on corruption is often misleading in Pakistan because it often is used to sidestep what are very important real questions about designing the vision for the future, right? I mean, to say corruption is like, you know, that all the people are stealing, you 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 are this is like you can maybe everybody is going to put them in jail. I don't. This is a legal thing. I what have I, what have I to say about that? Right. If you ask me as an yeah. economist, I'll say, OK, fine, do whatever you want with corruption. But can you tell me what your vision is? What is it that you are telling me you want to build for the future? Can we have a conversation about that? Can we have a conversation about the energy policy, what that is? Can we have a conversation about, you know, this mega investment coming from the outside? Have you done the sensitivity analysis and so on? Can we please have a more constructive conversation about how you are going to go forward? And equally importantly, who is going to build it? I mean, you mm -hmm. look at the group of people who are put in charge of very serious matters. Do they have the competence to build what is needed to be built in Pakistan? Because we don't have anything on the ground. Things have to be built uh, from scratch you know i often sometimes tell people uh, they say okay you know can you uh, can find someone to give good advice and so on i said no you don't need some genius to give advice you need mm -hmm. more like kind of ceos who can who know how to build stuff because yeah. what the country needs is building institutions from the ground up it needs building new firms new institutions um new you know new sectors from the ground up yeah, yeah. and so let's have a conversation on that and, and and put whoever has done corruption, put them in the jail. But that's just a legal thing. You know, I mean, that's not a policy question. Yeah, and I think that the, the company's point is is so important, right? And people often forget, but you can look at sort of the Pakistan stock exchange and compare it to, let's say, even the Indian stock exchange or the Bangladeshi stock exchange. And you see the new IPOs and the new companies coming up and they indicate how mature an economy is or the direction it's going, right? So for in India... You look at financial services and IT companies taking a bigger and bigger share of the share of the Bombay Stock Exchange, and in Pakistan, it's still you know they're not there. It's 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 just a very shallow uh, financial market, which shows that there are not a lot of companies being built 
that can actually make something and sell to the rest of the world that then solves the balance of payment crisis that the country keeps going back to every five years or so. Yeah, that's that's the core of the domestic productivity problem that I you know just yeah. highlighted. Obviously, we didn't have time to get into that, yeah. but yeah, that's that's the broader issue, which is the very weak domestic productivity. This is very much related, by the way. This sort of you mentioned privatization, but that's the problem with kind of uh, talking about privatization in vacuum in Pakistan as well, which is you know what pri- you know what can private companies do in Pakistan that you you think that's the solution? You know what have private companies done in Pakistan? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I have a friend who keeps telling me private companies in Pakistan valuations are much lower for private companies in Pakistan, and and I think that's you know and, and the whole sort of the the economic ecosystem is is broken. That's why I yeah. started off by saying we have a very deep problem until you recognize that and you take the mm-hmm. very serious steps that need to be taken. I mean that's why I recently wrote a, a, an article in the New York Times and where I basically said, look, you if you want to solve Pakistan's problem, you will have to have a lot of courage to do that. because you'll have to make decisions which are fundamentally dangerous in nature people are going to come after you yeah because you yeah, have to change the status quo yeah yeah the status quo is the beneficiary right and I, it's they don't lose out with 14% inflation or a dollar that you know a currency that depreciates by 50% um they in fact have gone many of them i grew up in karachi and every time i go back i know some people that i knew used to be going around into the corollas but just because they have been in power or have been around the corridors of power their wealth has gone up substantially at a time when guess what the rest of the country has continued to fall behind the rest of the world so the status quo has no incentive uh, to change and deal with these major major problems that are responsible for the sustained crises pakistan sees um speaking of you know the vision um and and where pakistan needs to go imagine you are the economy czar in pakistan you've been made you've been given all the power you need what are two or three things that you would start working on to set the path uh, or put pakistan in the right direction you know the 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 nice uh, thing about your question is that there is no chance in hell as people say of that <laughs> happening so um i can um, i can say whatever i want and then never be responsible for it no one will hold you accountable exactly. for this right that's no one very, will play you know, uh... no one will play this clip <laughs> um look i um have uh, talked about the decision making process i think that's super important first to have a process in place where this direction will have will be decided through an intelligent deliberative process with the right set of people i want to put in place i i fundamentally believe in building institutions and i would the first thing i would do is put in place a structure with the right people um let me just take a step back and say you know what we talk about like you know an executive like a prime minister or whatever what is his or her most important responsibility he or she has the same 24 hours in a day that you and i have and he or she cannot be more of a genius than einstein or whatever and you know so the they cannot do much by themselves no matter how smart they might be the best thing for them is in terms of their capacity and ability if you want to judge them by is you look for the type of people they appoint who they choose who do they delegate their authority to hmm. that is the most important criteria in my mind about figuring out 
whether a prime minister is doing a good job or not is to basically ask yourself who did he choose to delegate his authority to and that would be the f- first place i mean i don't know if you were making me the prime minister you might as well make me the prime minister right yeah yeah i mean i would also add that not just about i fun- completely agree with you on that point but it's also important to then see how how for how long will the prime minister stand by that team when the crisis comes and the status quo because of the reforms being pushed comes knocking on the door and says we don't like what's going on you need to change things yeah. at that point in time that's the sign right of a great prime minister or a great leader is that they say no i'm going to hold Absolutely. you off you because know, I mean, what's happening is important which is, which is precisely why again when i wrote recently an article in the new york times this is precisely why i talked about courage as the key attribute of the czar that you're making me <laughs> that you need to be able to take decisions and you need to be able to stand by them so mm-hmm. this level you know so having competence and appointing the right people that you delegate responsibility to is is very important the other thing i will mention is that you know when we i've already talked about weak domestic productivity growth now when we talk about boosting domestic productivity growth the one of the most important ingredients that will go in there is human capital and the quality mm-hmm. of the human capital and one of the great tragedies of pakistan has been that the 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 people with the you know the the, the reality especially in this globalized world, world whoever has the best talents will also be most mobile globally mm-hmm. and and so you have to give them an environment where they can function you have to give them an environment where they can breathe so you know instead of going head over toe in trying to attract quote and quote capital from x y and z i would form a government where i would be going head over toe to attract the best and the brightest of the world to come to pakistan again in terms of yeah. putting in terms of putting a target out there in terms of having the vision that's how i would define vision and that's how i would measure myself not in terms of how many dollars have come in but i will define myself how many people of high caliber have i been able to attract back to pakistan because you know because what? money flows to where the people are right money that, will naturally flow this is we don't have time to kind of go but i but, but let me just make the statement which is no country in the world is short of physical capital it's mm-hmm. actually true no country in the world and again china showed it China did not borrow a single net dollar from the rest of the world to achieve this remarkable growth that it did. So no country in the world is short of physical capital. If they can boost their domestic productivity by having the right talent, the right group of people who can come together and build stuff. That's the core over which yeah. an economy stands. And so again, it's the people who make an economy. there is no oil under our ground it's and let's not look for one i don't want that kind of pakistan anyways it's the people of pakistan that are going to build the economy of pakistan it's a very mm-hmm. obvious point i don't know why we don't understand that and so you treat the people of pakistan best and you will create an economy that is going to be great you attract the best talent pakistani or not from the outside world and you tell them we will give you everything you need but build everything in pakistan yeah that's the mantra you want to have and good things will happen but again you know you look you look at the events that are going on and i 
unfortunately we are not going in that direction yeah no i couldn't agree more with you i mean i'm a bit of a history buff and so one of the things at times i read about are the japanese reforms the meiji reforms i think they're called and one of the fundamental parts about the success of that reform was that all they did was send their best and brightest around the world to look at what was going on economically speaking and come back and implement those changes in Japan to make Japan a powerhouse. And Japan became a powerhouse in a matter of decades, um, not even a generation. And China's done that. Um, you look at the Gulf monarchies, the UAE, for example, same model, right? Come to the UAE, uh, develop things here, live here. And there are issues with the model in terms of governance that I have with what the UAE and China have. But the success story in terms of human development is phenomenal. Um, and it's built on the backs of talented educated, innovative people. Um, and in Pakistan, for some rhyme or reason, innovation and new ideas just don't seem to catch the attention of people um, who often talk about building a better and stronger economy, and they just chase after the wrong thing. So couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, I, I know we're running short on time. Uh, I you know, often ask people um, or have been trying to ask people you know, a lot of younger folks that when I look at and get feedback about the podcast or other things is that they're curious about, you know, knowing more about the economy, sort of getting out of the what what they've been told all along. And so what would be your advice uh, for a young Pakistani, sort of the future of the country? Um, how do they go about continuing to engage and educating themselves about what Pakistan's economic problems are and how to solve them, because ultimately that will be the generation, hopefully, that pushes pushes things forward and, and changes the status quo. Yeah, um, no, wonderful question. I mean, you know, just by the way, pers- on a on a personal note, I mean, you know, there's nothing more satisfying to me, especially given what I do, than talking to young people. I mean, that really constantly inspires me. I feel very fortunate that I get to work uh, on campus, which kind of exposes me to these young minds um, all the time. Um, and, and then especially, you know, Pakistani um, youth, uh, which is obviously the, 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 the country I grew up in and care deeply about. And then sort of it's, a, it's always a pleasure if I'm able to interact with them. The most important thing I will say is, and this is not just related to the econ- economy or economics, I'll come to that as well. But the most important thing in my mind is to tell the young uh, people, please develop the capacity to think critically. You know, do everything you can to open your mind, to challenge the status quo, to question, to think critically. You know, that beautiful saying of Socrates, you know, life unexamined is not worth living. It's very much Mm -hmm. true. Who we are as humans is fundamentally you know, is in in that saying of Socrates. You know, if you if if we don't think, if we don't kind of make independent decisions, then are we even alive? I would argue not. The very definition of being alive is the ability to make decisions, and that means you have to have uh, sort of an open mind, a critical uh, an app, you know, an attitude of towards critical thinking. So that would be the very first thing I would say is you know just develop that capacity. And mm-hmm. and unfortunately, it is. I would agree. You know, it is hard to have that in Pakistan. A lot of the things we do is sort of we 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 are constantly trying to prevent people from opening their eyes. We are constantly trying to prevent people from opening their mouths. 
um, we are constantly trying to prevent people from questioning. And that's fundamentally not conducive to human mind. It's fundamentally not conducive to thinking, to developing, towards growing, towards understanding, and ultimately towards making better decisions, coming back to this decision-making point. So we have to open up. I think that's my first would be just read everything you can, discuss, talk openly with people around you in a civilized manner. There is no need to yell and argue and you know fight physically or verbally, obviously. Um, yeah. But engage constructively. And when you do that with an, with an objective mind, what that means is the ability to say I was wrong, the ability to change your mind because the data tells you otherwise. Yeah. I think that's that's the biggest challenge actually is how do you detach your emotions um in a way that you are willing to change if that's what it takes to move in the right direction. So I think mm-hmm. you know developing that sort of an attitude is sort of well, like the first thing that I would say on in terms of my own field economics or economic thinking and so on I absolutely love what I do. I think economics is a it's a it's a beautiful field, and then the and the reason I say that is that it's 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 a science that forces you to think about what makes it work for the collective, and to move beyond the individual. Actually, right? That's that's really where economics becomes most interesting, most fascinating, which is to say what kind of decisions are in our collective interest, and not just our private or individual interest. Like many of the issues that we talked about. It might be in my private interest that I get a rate of return that is guaranteed in dollars. What's better than that? But it's not in our collective interest to do that. We are all poorer as a as a result of that. And I think this notion is, this is what it's only economics that allows you to think about the economic ecosystem that we all live in. It forces us to think about how we are all connected through these relationships that we have, that we buy and sell to each other, we borrow from each other, we kind of live collectively in these cities and so on. What is the implication of all of that for our collective well-being? The science that allows us to think about those questions, to investigate those questions, and then to come up with kind of policy prescriptions, if you like, or points of view, if you like, that's what economics is fundamentally about. And that's, that's a purely fascinating area of study so i would really you know it's it's a uh, the, the the you know on, on the technical side when you when you go in that direction very soon if you want to push further you have to do a lot of math because how these things add up how they fit with each other the language that you need to use to be able to analyze those things has to be mathematical in nature because the problem becomes high dimensional very quickly Similarly, on the empirical side, you have to use data and statistics. So again, that requires quantitative ability. So I think it's 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 a field that has f- fundamentally interesting questions, and it also requires kind of this marriage of having strong math and quantitative skills, but along with that, having strong kind of knowledge of institutions, uh, understanding of history, the ability to sort of you know understand the human. Uh, uh, emotions and behavior and so on. So I think if that's that's sort of the the area that 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 interests you, if those are kind of the the, the talents and the aptitudes that you have, um, 
you know, I, I, you know, would would personally want to encourage as many young people to kind of push themselves in this area as possible. Yeah, no, I think that that point about opening your mind is is so important, right? Because it's it's more fundamental at societal level, but also even from a basic business perspective, right? You could be making a pen, but you've never asked the question, why is it made in a certain way? You're never going to have the productivity growth going back to where we started um, that demands that or that is needed for you to be competitive in a global marketplace or even within the domestic market, right? So that why and figuring out why am I doing certain things a certain way is so fundamentally important. So um, that's a that's great advice. And before I let you go, speaking of reading a lot, what are two or three books that you've recently read that you would recommend or other books that you think that uh, listeners should pick up and read and, and pay attention to the content in those books? Um, yeah, so um, what have I read recently? So... Um, a few things. Uh, f- uh, f- first of all, I mean, one question that interests me a lot is this, um, you know, development of uh, artificial intelligence and everything else around it. I mean, it's a fascinating new development um, yeah. in the history of kind of human uh, progress and um, and big implications for your field as well. And big implications, yeah, but 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 yeah, but but much deeper than just my field, right? And so yeah. um, there's a book by, I'm forgetting the name of the author by an MIT physicist. It's called Life 3.0, uh, just on that question. And, you know, it, the book kind of starts with just, first of all, just trying to define what is intelligence, right? And and and, and that's sort of just a very fascinating question. I think it's fundamentally this, the, the, the thing that I find fascinating about artificial intelligence is that it, it, it fundamentally kind of challenges us as humans, because what is it that is exclusively ours that cannot be taken over by machines, right? Is so. What is it that is so? It's like the complement of artificial intelligence as well. If whatever machines can do is not like humans, right? So then, but what is it to be human? So it's a yeah. it's a fascinating question. I think both technologically but also philosophically. So that's that. Yeah. That book kind of goes into that, but I, you know, I think there's a lot, you know, that, that just fascinates me. So I think that's one book I would just, but uh, more generally, this area for people to kind of uh, read up more on. Um, on the economic side, there's a there's a book. Um, I always like books that kind of throw things out there, right? And not that you necessarily agree with everything that the book says, but it just kind of challenges the status quo in interesting and and big ways. And so from that perspective, on the economic side, there's a recent book called uh, Radical Markets uh, by Glenn Weil and, and, and Posner. Um, hmm. I think it's, a, it's, 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 it's fascinating. I really enjoyed it. It really sort of opened up a sort of possibilities in my head. Um, it's very, as I said, you know, this is, it, it's a, it, it challenges. I think some of the things in this book are probably not feasible from a policy perspective, but it's a very interesting read. It sort of combines auction theory with, 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 with how we should think of ownership of assets and property and things like that. So I think it's a, it's a fascinating book, uh, um, that I would uh, encourage people to read, um, on economic history slash development. I think especially for for the Pakistani audience, uh, there's a, um, a, a you know uh, uh, South Korea is a fascinating example for Pakistan, uh, and 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 the reason for that is that you know it's a country that if you were to go back to the sort of the 50s, um, it it looks in some in many ways it looks like Pakistan. It's a war ravaged country. Military is like super strong in the country. 
it has a huge defense expenditure right and it's a us ally in the bed in bed US with the ally United it's like everything is seen through a security lens and all of that right but guess what and a general is ruling the country general park yes and but guess what the country phenomenally transforms so i think you know people have these kind of uh, um no, caricatured notions of you know what we need to get things done but i think history for that reason is precisely interesting because it gives you interesting ex- experiments and examples so so anyways i mean i think south korea so on that there is a book by um, uh, kim and vogel called uh, the park chung hee era uh, precisely on that early years of you know general park and sort of how he struggled with trying to transform the country and what kind of decisions he took and so on by the way that is not to suggest that you know history never repeats itself in that sense right so i'm not saying do everything that korea yeah. trick but i think it's just again just to kind of jostle your mind and think of the possibilities i think that's 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 an interesting yeah no i think that the korean example is so fascinating right and often in pakistan people talk about korea and where it was and where pakistan was and how the paths diverged and that's where they stop and my question always to them whenever they're speaking or writing about is like so tell us more about what are the lessons that can be drawn from that example to learn more and and progress uh in different ways uh maybe similar uh than the korean model and so i'm going i'm going to get this book and take a take a look at it because it sounds fascinating and yes korea with this chaebols with samsung and what it has achieved is just a phenomenal success story that you know is worthy of replicating Yeah. 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 Um so on that note, um thank you so much for joining. I know we're way over time, but I really appreciate you being so candid, so uh honest with your perspective and for sharing really the two most important things that are uh fun- fundamental for Pakistan's progress, which is decision-making process, having a vision for where the country needs to go and productivity growth. And I think uh they're not talked about a lot in pakistan and the and the discourse in pakistan around the economy so i thank you for taking out the time and and we'll be in touch and hopefully we'll have you on the podcasts uh, very soon again as well thank you azhar very very kind of you to have me thank you thank you for tuning in for this episode of pakistanomy hope you enjoyed the discussion if you like this podcast please do subscribe to it using your favorite podcast app and do share it with your friends and family as well as on your social media hope you tune in next time goodbye